millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, so welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 160. Tonight, we have an old friend. We have Braden Dennis from The Canadian Investor and StratosphereInvesting.com back with us tonight for another show. So without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to the boys and we're going to go ahead and get started. So Braden, why don't you say hi and Andrew, say hi. Hey. Hello, Hello, friend. (laughs) Good to be back, guys. Yeah, you you bunkered down over there, keeping safe. I I am, man. Things are starting to Starting to open up, feel a little bit more like summer, but uh, still got a long way to go. I think. I got I got frisky the other day. I I went to the gas station and didn't buy gas. I just went because I wanted to get something else. Wow! <laughs> wow! You rebel, you absolute risk taker. <laughs> right. Uh, speaking of risk, so uh, we've had some good questions about investors who are in. You, the UK, for example, investors who are in Canada, they're maybe interested in buying into the US stock market. But you know, there's a lot of hurdles that that tend to come along. So maybe from your perspective, being a Canadian investor, the way I see it is there's a risk if you're not getting exposure to the US. And there's a long list of reasons. I don't want to go through all of them. But the fact of the matter is, is so much of the world's economy today runs on U.S. dollars. And so if you take the coronavirus as an example, obviously that was something that hit the global economy on a scale that we've never seen before. And so central banks really had to print money to try and inject and, and kind of bring this sputtering economy back to life. And so different central banks in different countries did that. But the scale with which the Fed did that 
here in the United States was a, a much bigger factor than, let's say, happened in the EU. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's so many dollars circulating all around and that it's in such high demand that a lot of money can be injected into the system. And so I think there's a risk, particularly if you look through history at a lot of different countries and stock markets, where if they are not able to keep up with the standard with currencies and economies, then their stock market could do great as it looks kind of on a silo. But in reality, the investors are not experiencing great returns. And so I think there is a big risk in not being in the in the US market. And so from your perspective, maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that are there um, with getting invested in the US stock market and maybe why it could be a good idea or not for somebody who's in that position. Yeah, great question. So I'm seeing that in two parts. So the first part is I wholeheartedly agree that it is silly to not own exposure to US companies. There are some of the best capital light compounding companies on the planet and they're only listed in most cases on US exchanges. So when it comes to hurdles and in investing in US stocks, when I think of actual like technical hurdles, if your broker doesn't sell US stocks or have have exposure to US exchanges, you need a new broker. So we'll start with that. In terms of hurdles, what most people are worried about is they think that they're taking on excessive risk by exchanging the currency as well. You know, if they if they want to be withdrawing on that money and all of a sudden the currency exchange has unfavorably affected how what your returns are going to be, then they could see that as a risk. And I don't disagree with that, but on a long-term basis, that should not be something that is stopping you from investing in the US market. You should be investing in the highest quality of companies that'll compound for you. And we can get into what the what those companies look like, but that is more important of a decision on what you can control is investing in high quality companies that versus something that is completely out of your control, which is foreign exchange. Foreign exchange is completely out of your control. And the smartest people in the world can't predict what's going to happen with currencies. So there's no point of you even wasting a minute on it. Peter Lynch has a famous quote where he says, uh, 15 minutes a year uh, looking at macroeconomics is 15 minutes wasted. Uh, And I, I agree with him because it's impossible to focus on things that are out of your control and not helpful. So, so that's that's the first part. I, yeah, um, I. Uh, yeah. Sorry to no, jump in. I know a lot of companies. In if you look through their ten Ks, you'll see that if they have foreign risk exposure, they will have these derivatives that they do and basically try to offset some of that risk. And so, something that I actually did last week that I hadn't really thought to do before kind of going back to the whole common sense thing 
is if you can go through your portfolio and literally like partition it out into percentages of how much revenue is in each country, you can achieve geographical diversification without even necessarily needing to own shares in various different countries. So as an example, I don't know how much of you have been following what's going on in Hong Kong. Any time on it spent also is probably a waste of time because it's just infuriating to hear what's going on. And maybe that's political. Maybe I shouldn't say that. But you know, bottom line is there, there, Hong Kong is a place where there used to be a lot of free trade, and now that's being restricted, not just by the US, but by pretty much everybody in the EU. It's pretty much everybody in the world against China on this, and they are basically pulling back and not going to be doing as much trade in the Hong Kong area because of what Beijing has been doing over there in that area. So, you know, you have risks like that in China where there are political risks. The systems there economically are set up differently. They have different values. And so like a big risk in in investing in China is that they don't have as stringent of accounting principles as a lot of the countries in the West do. And there's been just a huge history of manipulation and deceit. And so you might think as an investor, well, I really want to invest in China. How do I do that if you know if if all of these stocks on these exchanges are shady or as we've seen lately, um, access for Chinese companies starts to go away as countries start to hunker down inside of their own borders. So one way you can do that is by owning companies that export to those markets. And if you look throughout your portfolio and again, partition between how much how much exporting and how much currency are you kind of bringing in um, based on how your portfolio is set up and what, what their key markets are, then that's one that's another way to, to achieve that outside of just having to buy a bunch of shares in a bunch of different countries and, and deal with the taxes there. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on a huge spiel while you were here, but uh, I think it's something that's important for investors to think about, particularly as we discover more and more, you know, you saw in, in the Great Recession, 08, 09, just how a crisis in one country can affect a lot of countries and that's becoming more evident as every day goes by. And that's something we need to think about. I totally, totally agree, especially on the piece about being able to invest in companies that have global business. I love investing in companies that are top of large global tailwinds at their back. Uh, those are some of the best compounders that, that you can find. So I'll give an example here in Canada, Brookfield Asset Management, ticker BAM.A, and is also listed on the New York Stock Exchange, just ticker BAM, does business all over the world in real assets, so real estate, infrastructure project, energy utilities. They have offices in Canada, US, South America, Europe, in tons of business in, in, in Asia and in and in India. So there's a perfect example of a place you can, somewhere where you can invest in your own currency, but get exposure to global business. So you're getting instant 
geographic diversification from owning high quality global companies. Uh, another example, say you live in Sweden, uh, home to Spotify, what I think is the Netflix of audio and an incredible business model is, you know, probably listed there in their home country, but does a large portion of their business in North America. So those are just prime examples of, you know, if you really are worried about taking the hit on the currency risk or, or not even the currency risk, but seeing your dollars just did not go as far when the Canadian dollar is only 75 cents on the U S dollar makes you feel like, you know, you're getting an instant 25% haircut. So I get that, but long term, again, what can you control? You can control the decisions you make in your investment portfolio if you're managing it on your own. And by doing that, you're able to pick only the highest of quality companies that have global opportunity. For the real 10 baggers, they scale beyond just their home geographic location. And that includes US companies. You know, US companies like Amazon and Microsoft and Apple don't hit 1 trillion market cap by just selling iPhones in the US. They sell iPhones to every major market you can think of. So I I I I agree there. That's there's a lot of value in being able to to be able to select those companies that perform global business and uh, have wide, wide moats that'll continue to compound for, you know, decades to come. You mentioned moats, you mentioned scalability. Would it be fair to say that tech can be one of those that could have both in abundance, especially the scalability part? Both in excessive abundance, and you're seeing them trade it extreme multiples right now they're getting really high premiums and i will say this some of them may look tremendously overvalued and if you go case by case i would think that a lot of them are but if you look at the business model they're so capital light and so scalable that they were having cra- crazy good gross margins on the top. So they, you're getting at least 80% gross margins on these tech companies because you know their input costs are so low. And then that trickles all the way down to create really high free cash flow margins as well. And they're able to reinvest that at such a high ROI that they deserve these high valuations in my opinion. I mean, there is a limit to that. You know, I'm not going to go buy something at 50 times sales, you know, like that's just insanity, but they do deserve higher premiums, higher quality businesses deserve higher valuations on a traditional metric basis. So I'll give you an example here. Right now, you know, we're in a pandemic stocks dropped a lot. There was this huge rally on the S and P. And it's skewed to, for you to believe that the entire stock market has come back to all-time highs. A few companies have put the entire index on their back and carried the S&P up to, and, the, and the NASDAQ to 
what are all time highs. And it's, it's, it's a, it's not true. You know, you, you can take statistics and take data and shape shift them any way you want. And so you see that, you know, NASDAQ new highs and it's only because it's market cap weighted in these ETFs too. And they're taking on so much of those gains when they, since it's market cap weighted that they make so much of the index. So I'll give you an example, Microsoft, Netflix. These are companies that are worth more than they were pre-pandemic, and they should be worth more. Q1, Amazon, uh, Q1 Microsoft reported an 80% increase in their Microsoft Teams platform. That is like, you know, one of the best Q1s I've ever read. And it was during a pandemic when, you know, the sky was falling. So it's really skewed when a lot of these big, big tech companies are making such, such big gains. And in most cases, you know, as a general blanket rule, they're worth more now than they were before on the stock market. And they should be worth more than they, than they were before on the stock market because they're doing more business than ever. And they're proving the durability and the, and the wide, wide moat that a lot of these companies do have. I think the very key part about what I'm picking up from what you're saying, um, you talk about these really, really high gross margins. And so traditionally, when you talk about businesses, the problem with very, very high margins is it attracts competition. And so as competitors enter the space, the margins squeeze and you know the margins mean revert, they go back to normal, and then you don't have those great gross margins anymore, and so the valuations will fall. But when you start to talk about companies that have huge moats, that that will be that barrier to keep gross margins high. And I think I, I don't know, I'm I'm shocked with the way that some of these companies have continued to keep their margins high or, or keep that competitive moat intact. And you wonder if it's something that gap is seemed seems to widen now where you see a difference between businesses who can stay competitive versus those who are just kind of hanging around and being mediocre. And so, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for looking for capital light businesses, particularly if they have a strong moat. And I think that might be the most, one of the most important parts when you're looking at a company like, like uh, what we're talking about here. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, my favorite duopoly on the planet is I, you know, I talked about it for an entire episode last time I was on here is Visa and MasterCard. MasterCard has 40% free cash margins. So if people are not familiar with that is, 40% of all the revenue they make on the top line is actually pumped into free cash flow. And they can take that free cash flow and reinvest it with really, really high return on invested capital as well. So you get this unbelievable compounding effect when you have high free cash margins and high return on equity and high return on uh, invested capital. You get this amazing, amazing long-term compounding effect. And that's why you've seen them perform so well. And the runway for growth for them still 
is so high, you know, even at 350 billion in market cap, super, super high runway. Cash is dead. Cash is done. I don't know about how, what, what it's like down in the States, but I know in Canada, the amount of businesses that just do not take cash anymore is really, really high because of COVID. And that was, that was, that was a trend that was already happening. So this kind of goes back to the big tech thing. There's all these trends that were happening and coronavirus sped them up by like five years and three months, you know? So MasterCard and Visa are another example of those companies that are not looked at as traditional technology plays but should. So maybe there's, uh, there's arbitrage there in the valuation and not that they trade particularly cheap, but you know, I, I think you can get underpriced free cash flow growth by owning those names. Can you give an example of high ROIC and high free cash flow just to give some conceptualization to what exactly that means? It doesn't have to be Visa or MasterCard, but Give an example of how free cash flow can turn into compounding. Sure. So what happens is the cash flow statement obviously starts with net income at the top. And then we're going to unravel all of the funny things that happen on in the account and generally accepted accounting principles into the ultimate metric, which is free cash. So what you're going to do is you're going to add back depreciation and amortization. You're going to add that back because we should have never taken that out uh, in generally like modern thought of stock investing. We, we, we shouldn't have never taken that out because that's not a real cash transaction, right? If you own a car, for instance, and you're, you, that sits in your driveway and it's depreciating all the time, sure, you know the value of the car is lower next year. Totally. You're, you're using it. Uh, it's getting older. So you're taking on that depreciation. But it's not a cash transaction in your finances. Next year, you didn't have money that came out of your bank account because the car depreciated by $500. That was never a cash transaction. So that's a, that's a real life example of why we should have never taken it out. So we're going to put that back in, okay? So we're going to add that back on. And then we're going to remove CapEx, capital expenditures, which on, depending on where you're looking on uh, financial statements, some people might call it property, plant, and equipment. Some is just capital expenditure. Same thing. And what that line does is we're going to take that all out. So here's an example. If I have a manufacturing plant, and I am going to build another manufacturing plant. Why would I not be taking that out of the amount of cash that's left over at the end of the year, at the end of the quarter, if I have to build that? That is an investment that I, I, I need to make to grow the business. So why is that important? I hate to make the, the, this episode against the, about those payment companies again, but Visa and MasterCard don't have to invest in those types of assets to grow. They can grow organically without investing in capital expenditure. So this just makes for a better business model when they're capital light. And that's why you're seeing 
super high free cash margins in technology because the capex they're very asset light so they don't have to take on those kinds of costs to grow so that's why people you know you know people in finance are, think free cash flow is like the nirvana of 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 accounting because that's the amount of cash that's actually left over to invest in the business. So now we have another thing happening. I have free cash left over and I'm going to reinvest it in the business or pay a dividend or buy back stock. Those are my, those are three things I can do. So I can invest it back in the business and companies that have high returns on investing back in the business. That's the line return on invested capital, which by the way, is not useful on a one year. You know, what, what was their return on invested capital in 2019? I don't care as much as what's the five year, 10 year average. Cause it can fluctuate so much based on little things on the, on the income statement. So what's the five year, 10 year average on that return on invested capital. And that's what the amount of returns they'll be able to generate with the free cash. So if you can combine those two things, and, and this is this is not anything I came up with. This is very widely accepted as, as very good long-term stock investing is high free cash and then high return on those on that cash, which is return on invested capital. Hey you, what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. I, I'd argue that I know we don't want to talk about macroeconomics, but I'd argue that with the very, very low interest rates, capital light and free cash flow becomes even more important than it did in the past. Because if interest rates are super low, cash is cheap. And you know that those assets that are sitting on your balance sheet are not worth much when you can borrow cash for a half a percent or a percent. So, I mean, I, I really liked the explanation you gave about free cash flow. I think that's probably one of the most concise, simple, easy to understand explanations I've heard about free cash flow. And that's really what a lot of it boils down to. I mean, you can get as complex about it as you want. I wrote my e-letter issue for July. It went out yesterday. And I talked about how for the company I was analyzing... I had to use I, I used three different formulas for free cash flow because each one could be slightly different and you know sometimes depending on the business model or the industry it can be a little bit different but you know it's important to just get a good grasp and just this idea that we have the earnings the profits we're going to add back some of the stuff that were was non-cash like depreciation and we're going to take away the big capital expenditures that um like a big plant or big piece of land that it takes to run the business and that's going to leave us with our free cash flow. Now the one thing I guess I would add and see if you have any comments on this too is I think particularly when you're looking at companies with really high free cash flow if and I guess it's a big if if the company is not reinvesting in their own business or if even if they are you really need to look at how they are allocating the capital and make an ROIC determination based off of that. And so a company could have great free cash flow margins or great free cash flow growth, 
But if they're just pissing it away over in a corner, um, then that a lot of that value over the long term is not going to trickle back down to the shareholders. So I'll give an example again. Last month, I was comparing two companies. They both seem to have um, decent free cash flows. They had good ones, okay? Particularly compared to where they were trading at, the valuation, the multiple, it was very low. And so I was very attracted to both. Uh, One was using pretty much all of their free cash flow to make acquisitions. And so they had crazy amounts of revenue growth, crazy amounts of earnings growth, and they're making these acquisitions. So everything seemed like a perfect situation for an investor. When I started digging into how they were doing these acquisitions, they were basically buying up these dealerships across the country. And then it was almost like a flip or flop, like that that home building episode where they would buy it up, fix it up all nice, and then now they would have a lot more uh, an a lot more efficient income stream. And so when I started running the numbers on some of the latest acquisitions they made, I was looking at an ROIC of like one percent. And in their earnings presentation, they were talking about how they would take these gross margins and and basically turn them into a 3x. So we're talking about ROIC going from one to three if they're successful in doing this makeover for these businesses that they're acquiring, these little dealerships. So I'm looking at that and I'm like, okay, you're you're getting me a lot of free cash flow, but I'm only getting a 3% ROIC over the very, very long term. That's going to destroy a lot of the shareholder value and basically negate the positivity from this free cash flow. On the other hand, I had another business I was looking at. Fortunately, it looked like they were being a lot more efficient with their capital. They were buying back a lot of shares. And over the very, very long time period, that was turning into positive ROIC for the shareholder because they were they were um, getting bigger ownership slices of of this company. They were getting higher free cash flows per share, higher earnings per share, book value per share. It was all growing because they were buying back shares at an attractive price, and that's all flowing back to the shareholder. So I guess all that to say, I think free cash was very very important with the added. You know everything we've we've been talking about. Everything you talk about investing um, needs to have an accompanying, but also this, right? So when you talk about capital light or high gross margins, but also with a high competitive moat, and when you talk about free cash flow, but also with good capital allocation. Do you agree? Disagree? What What do you have to say? What's your definitive stance on the matter? As a finance nerd, you would assume that I have my money game all together. Well, shocker, I didn't. Until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated, all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Monarch has a tool that allows you to easily import your data from Mint and keep all of your tags and categories. 
Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product. They release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Well, I, I definitely agree with what you're getting at in terms of when you can combine a few metrics, then you'll find some really big winners in the stock market. Um, and that makes total sense if companies who have opportunity to reinvest it at a higher expected return uh, than company B, then they'll probably be giving you better returns than investment B. Uh, that's, but it goes back to combining a couple things. If company A, the, those metrics look all great, but trades at 50 times sales, then there's no multiple expansion for me there at all. And then that kind of falls apart. So I totally agree with what, with what you're, you're saying. It's yeah, growth is nice, but, but at what price, at what price are you, are you going to pay for that growth? And I am totally in the camp of, I think it's far better to buy wonderful businesses at fair prices than, you know, fair businesses at, at good prices, the old Warren Buffett quote. And I, I, I agree, I agree totally there, but the important word there is fair prices or slightly expensive prices. I'll even go there. But when you see things, you're seeing so much software as a service right now, uh, what people call SaaS trading at 20 times sales and no one even is questioning it. Like that's, that's expected. I remember, you know, for a while there, these companies were, were expensive at eight times and now, now they're, now they're cheap at that. Uh, now, and, and when I say that, I mean sales and then all of a sudden, Oh, well, you know, they're expected to be 10 and that multiple keeps creeping up more and more and more. And I get that these businesses are very, very, very good. They are capital light. They don't have to invest that much to grow. Uh, these are all the things that you're looking for, but at what price, right? So I, I totally agree with you. Do you hey, could I could I hazard yeah. a could I hazard a thought on some of this? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess I, I, I'm questioning as you guys are talking back and forth about some of the metrics and, and whatnot. I'm wondering if maybe we should start considering different metrics for these kinds of businesses simply for the fact that a lot of the things that we're talking about tonight are things that were not happening 30, 50 years ago when a lot of the finance and accounting rules were kind of, I guess, set in stone, if you will. And I wonder, because as you guys were talking, these companies are so different than the companies that dominated the S&P 20 years ago, even. 
and will be different 20 years from now. So I wonder if we have to, I guess, shift our thinking on how we think about what is air quotes expensive compared to what it used to be, because I think some of the rules have changed uh, with thinking about something like price to book, return on equity, return on invested capital. Those You can't really compare a return on invested capital of Microsoft to Wells Fargo. They're, they're completely different businesses, and it's just not in the same league of how they operate and how they function based on their business. So I, I wonder if we just need to cha- start changing how we think about the metrics. Yeah, that's a actually really interesting thought. And I think about that all the time. And at the same time, I, I really do not want to be in the in the camp of, oh, we can't value these businesses like we used to. Um, but at the same time, if you've been ignoring these types of companies over the last decade, you've just flat out underperformed the market in a major way, like not by just a little bit, by like by a lot, because you're seeing so much of the gains in the S and P come from a few names who happened out mostly all be technology companies. But I agree. They're so different than traditional businesses that have lots of assets that invest in manufacturing that, just have so many other complicated intricacies, logistics, and costs associated with that compared to a capital light Spotify, you know, comparing them. And then, and then again, there's, there's exceptions to the rules, right? The Netflix costs are super high. And that's a, that's a, that's, that's one that is maybe, tremendously overvalued. I don't know. Because when I look at that, I go, well, this isn't a free cash generating machine when it costs a billion dollars to put together uh, you know, a Netflix original or whatever the, the cost is. So yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very good question, uh, Dave. And I'm, I'm interested to see what Andrew has on this. I I'm cautious about, so it's like a conflicting opinion, right? Because on the one hand, you have a very similar phenomenon at the end of the dot-com bubble where a lot of the indexes turned overwhelmingly tech and people started talking about different metrics, like all of a sudden website visitors became like a finance metric or... I don't know what the other ones were, but it, it was to that extreme where, where companies are being valued just for no reason at all. So, you know, you really have to be cautious about getting into that kind of a mindset. And, you know, this phenomenon of having a small group of businesses to totally dominate the index that, that has happened in bull markets before. And that doesn't mean I think. A bull market's about to end, but you know we've seen it before, so it's not this crazy idea. On the flip side, I was looking at. Let, I, I want to see what were the top twelve, top fifteen 
even top 10 businesses in the S&P 500. I did this maybe a month or two ago. And I just wanted to see what, what seems to be the common theme here. Why are all these businesses really good? Besides the fact that a lot of them are names that we all know or we all use on a daily basis. And I was noticing the ROICs for all of these businesses, not only just double digits, but close to 20%. And I'm talking about not one year, not two years. We're talking about like 10 years, the median ROIC is 20%. So that's Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft would fit in there, Google. And so they have huge ROICs for very long periods of time. What does it lead to? Well, like Brandon was talking about, when you have all that free cash flow, you can do things like grow your revenues really aggressively, grow your earnings per share really aggressively. And so, yeah, I think it. I think it's definitely worth considering. And obviously, you want to do it intelligently because it's just not a cure-all, fix-all kind of idea. We can't just throw everything to the wind like they did in the dot-coms. But we do have to understand that technology does change the game in the sense that the asset I, I almost think the assets change now where it's not even like a piece of machinery, but it's 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 increasingly more intangible. And I think people become so much more important. A workforce becomes so much more important, particularly when they're highly skilled or highly technical. And so you just have a lot of these intangibles that are really hard to quantify in financial statements. And so you really do need to take it on a case-by-case intelligent basis. And what Brayden said was a perfect example. Like Netflix, it's a really sexy name and everybody knows it and it sounds tech and it sounds like it'd be light capital and it sounds like it'd be great compounding. But when you get into the financials, it's not because right there in the cash flow statement, it shows you that they are spending unseen, like crazy amounts of, of free cash flow just to sustain themselves to keep creating new content. And Dave, we were talking about the other day, that content gets old real quick and they need to replace it over and over and over again. And so, you know, you contrast that with some of the other great businesses that Brain mentioned today. I think I think you can pick your spots and and maybe and this is something I learned from you too, Dave. I think maybe it doesn't need to be so black and white. You can find yourself somewhere in the middle where you're taking the best of both worlds and and really intelligently applying some metrics and finding those great businesses that can do good, not just the 10 years prior, but the 10 years to come. Yeah, I, I, I like that. And I, I think, I'm sorry, uh, I think I agree with what you guys are saying. And I guess maybe I didn't clarify the correct way. I think maybe we should consider moving the goalposts, I guess is a better way of putting it. I feel like a lot of the metrics that we discuss and consider are based on more old school styles of businesses. And I think, and I guess I don't think I'm wondering if as the technology improves that those goalposts probably need to change a little bit because of just the examples you guys have been talking about, Microsoft, Zoom, Visa, MasterCard, uh, you know, just, we can just go on and on and on. And those are arguably fantastic businesses, but they're different than Exxon was 20 years ago. It, you know, that was a very 
capital heavy company, you could argue that Netflix, that's one of the things that they struggle with is they're a capital heavy company because of what you just mentioned. And I wonder if we need to adjust to the goalposts a little bit for a company like Visa or MasterCard or Amazon or, you know, God forbid, Tesla. Uh, he could just go on and on. And I just wonder if at some point maybe we need to adjust the goalposts on those kinds of businesses simply for the fact that they're doing things that are different than Ben Graham was talking about 50, 60 years ago. I, I, I think a lot of the concepts that he talked about are still obviously in play and are very, very valid. But I just wonder if maybe the metrics that we use to decide on what is a good and what is a bad company and what's expensive and what's not expensive. I just wonder if some of that has changed. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with that. I, I'm hesitant. What I'll say is I'm, I'm hesitant to say the game has changed because I don't, th- I, I think it's still very, very similar, but the types of businesses that exist now that dominate the S&P are without a doubt, I'm no problem sounding off. They're just better businesses than ever. They're just, they're just higher quality businesses and business models that um, encourage the things that we're talking about in terms of the metrics of high free cash and high ROIC are baked into that model. And that's why you're seeing such incredible returns. But uh, I, I'm, I'm hesitant, but it's, it, I, I do. I, I think about this all the time, Dave. I do. I guess, I guess I'll put my two cents in too. I, I, I generally agree with, with that thinking as well in the sense. So I think Ben Graham, he, so if, if you really go back, I, if you go back and, and really read his his book, The Intelligent Investor, he really doesn't mention price to book that much, and it's become gospel to a lot of value investors, myself included, particularly in the past. But if you read what he's talking about with margin of safety, he talks about finding a discount, finding a company that's trading at a discount to its earning power. And so that doesn't necessarily need to do with price to book and it doesn't necessarily need to do with free cash flow it just so happens that free cash flow tends to lead to high earning power so i i I guess i would push back a little bit against what you're saying dave and and say i don't think the rules of the of the game have changed in the sense that it's still going to be about earnings it's still going to be about free cash flow and you know the concept of free cash flow that's not new either this guy named John Burr Williams, he wrote a book called The Theory of Investment Value, and it was back in the 1930s. And that's really where the first DCF model came from, which evolved to the free cash flow uh, DCF. So they're now practiced today in finance and, and taught in the schools. And, and Buffett referenced that book in his 92, 1992 share, shareholder letter. So I don't think we're necessarily dealing with super brand new concepts where you need to completely change the goalposts. I will say though that there's a possibility that a metric like price to book might might not be as valid as before. That doesn't mean it's not useful. 
but it just means you need to be smart about how you use it. And and who knows, right? I was looking at a really uh, interesting chart today that showed the biggest separation between different like uh, quant strategies of growth versus value. And value, as of like today, has become the most out of favor it has in like over a hundred years of stock market data. And all of those times it hits these, these, these uh, troughs of value being out of favor, it then goes on to outperform everything else. So we could be back here in Q4 and value has this amazing, amazing recovery, or maybe it takes a bit longer than that. True value investors know that for the, it takes years and years and years of sometimes looking like an idiot before you see that multiple expansion that you, you were buying the business and that's where you were looking for returns was multiple expansion. It can take the market a long, long time. Here's the problem with deep value investing is that the market may never agree with you ever. It just may never agree with you even if by every stretch of your model that you've put together in terms of what the intrinsic value is, some businesses are undervalued for their entire lifetime. So that that has to be built into your risk understanding um, and, and traditional measures of margin of safety. You have to bake in that risk, in my opinion. I, I like that idea. I, I I like that we're talking about this. It's not like we're going to solve it overnight. This is uh, so hotly debated. And I, I, on the one hand, so I'm like torn because on the one hand, I agree that as value gets more and more out of favor, that's the time when it's going to be probably become its its most profitable. I saw something the other day. It was a chart about how that brief time period where the market kind of whipsawed back after the Corona crash value had one of its best short-term performances against growth that it had had in a very, very long time. Um, the thing I'll ask you, Brayden, you mentioned the, the, the difference in, in uh, what was it? Quartile. Did it give a time period? Like how far back did that go as far as one outperforming the other? Oh, it went back mm-hmm. like, like into, I think like the late 1800s, this, okay. this, this chart. Yeah. It was very cool to look at. So, so we're, we're talking about a multi-century possible snapback is what you're saying. Yeah. Like, yeah. Based on what that graph was implying, you, you could, you could definitely make some sort of prediction that that could have some high probability to it. However, just like how I think um, looking at charts and graphs to make investment decisions is really goofy, I think it's pretty goofy to look at that long-term trend and assume that something's going to happen on on that front as well. As soon as you get people who go on uh, CNBC and start talking about head and shoulders found formations as a reason to invest in a stock is when you instantly turn off the TV and never listen to that person ever again. 
<laughs> well, well, maybe to circle back to what we were saying at the beginning of the episode, you mentioned this goes back to the late 1800s. I wonder if it is just referring to U.S. equities or if it's talking about global equities. Um, you may or may not know the answer to that. I'd have but, to look. It was on Tobias Carlyle's Twitter this morning. Okay. If you want to look it up. So, I mean, I guess my point is that there's a lot of, like you said, a lot of charts that you can make. And I think a lot of the comparisons between this strategy versus that strategy, this metric versus that metric, a lot of it can be made out of context. And so I think anything that goes, let's say back to the 1920s even, if you're looking just at uh, the 1920s to 1940s, and that's how far back you go, and if you're only looking at U.S. stocks, then your study, your examination of the data is already useless because we're talking about a time of prosperity uh, in a country that's had world reserve currency status and just immense financial power, and so you can't use that as a future-looking metric, and so. You know, we can apply that maybe to this chart, maybe to other charts, to other arguments. And I think, you know, the deeper down this rabbit hole we go, the more cautious we need to be about making inferences or decisions, big kind of strategy decisions based off of these sorts of things that that could be flawed and maybe pay more attention to stuff that just makes sense, you know, simple stuff. Fully, because this is not just investing, this is in life. When you see uh, a statistic or a metric that is on the news, it can be shaped in any way to tell a different narrative. Here's an example for investing. I think it was last week or the week before, all the airlines soared over 20% in one trading day. I think American Airlines was up like 25% by noon that day off the news that air, air uh, travel was up like 80% from uh, the previous month. It's like, well, 80% from what base? From what, nothing. zero? <laughs> yeah, from zero. <laughs> from zero, zero right? to 80, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, so 17 Americans took flights last week. Great news. That's fantastic, right? Like, oh, incredible news. Time to buy uh, Delta Airlines, right? So, those those narratives can be shaped in any way. And this isn't just investing. This is with everything. Statistics can be shown in a way to tell whatever narrative is convenient for the, the, the story that they're trying to tell. So uh, there's, a, there's a prime example of the market reacting irrationally to news based on a number that is meaningless to me. But that may be enough for a stock to go through the roof. I think that's a perfect way to end our discussion tonight. So Braden, for people who want to learn more about these capital light businesses that you talk about, they want to hear more of your voice and hear you speak about these capital light businesses work and they do that. I am on a weekly podcast called the Canadian investor, which you can get anywhere you find your, uh, your podcast Is that as well. US ideas now, finally? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, it's, yeah. I think it's a different RSS feed. I, do, I don't know. It's very confusing. 
Um, but yeah, that you can you can catch me on that podcast weekly with my co-host. And then additionally, you can see all the things I write about on my blog at stratosphereinvesting.com. If you want a list of what I think are some of the best companies and some of the, the capital light compounders that I talk about, you can go to getstockmarket.com. That actually redirects you to Stratosphere Investing. So that's getstockmarket.com. And uh, there's a list there for you. Perfect. That's awesome. Thank you, Braden. I appreciate that. And by the way, folks, as a little a little side note, definitely check out his podcast. It's really worth listening to. I enjoy it. I listen to it every week. It's it's great. He and he and his co-host Simon are really really fun. It's a it's a great show. So I highly encourage you to check it out. Appreciate that. Dave. So yeah, you're welcome. So without any further ado, uh, going to go ahead and take us out. All right, folks. Well, that's going to wrap up our conversation for this evening. I wanted to thank Braden for taking time out of his busy night to come and talk to us. Uh, we enjoyed having him on the show, and we'll have him back again real soon. So without any further ado, you guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.